in the end, there's always a little magic in there. I mean, I know all this stuff now about Raymond Chandler and that he, he couldn't live with his own sexual orientation and that sort of stuff. But I don't know why he could write like a slumming angel. It was a way to look at him and a way to think about him. It's not like I figured them out. This leaves you with three questions. The first question is, were Sigmund Freud and Ross MacDonald right? Can you find the author in his fiction even when he doesn't want you to? The second question is, okay, say you can find it. Does that buy you anything? Do you get more out of the reading if you know about the author? And the third question, which is queasy for me, is, is this fair game? Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Karen Houston Carides. She had a 24-year career at the Arlington County, Virginia Department of Libraries, where she focused on adult acquisitions and reference, and then she ran the library for inmates inside the Arlington County Detention Center for five years. She has a master's degree in English from the New York University and library science from the University of Maryland. At 60 years of age, she pursued her interest in literary biography by entering the University of Maryland's Ph.D. program in English literature and language. After receiving her degree in 2010, she returned full-time to public library work and is now the acquisitions librarian for the Talbot County Free Library in Maryland. Her book, Hard-Boiled Anxiety, The Freudian Desires of DeShiel Hammett, Raymond Chandler, Ross MacDonald, and Their Detectives, is based on her dissertation and was published by Seekant Publishing in August 2016. Kirkus Reviews named it one of the best indie books of August. So welcome to the podcast, Karen. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for, for coming on. I feel like I have a lot to like I want to unpack in this podcast, but I think I kind of first want to jump into this novel, Hard Boiled Anxiety, was based on your dissertation, which you decided to do at 60. Uh-huh. How does that, how, how at 60 do you just decide, I'm going to go get my doctorate and and write my first novel and just roll on out? That seems like a, it seems like a mountain, but I, it, you certainly climbed it. I thought it was really cool that it was free. I thought, well, this is a good deal. You know? <laughs> Plus, there's a, there's a certain kind of, uh, academic rigor or something in 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 courses and lectures and academic reading and academic writing and i didn't want that to be over i wanted to be able to still do that and um it it's exhilarating it was fun it was exhilarating and the other thing is i think I wanted to see if I could make myself do all the work because, after all, I didn't have to do this. It didn't no. further my career, in, right. you know. And then I found out, yeah, I could make myself do this, and that was a good thing to find out. So, and how did you settle on the on your on your source material? I mean, I'm I'm a huge detective novel fan of these particular uh, Hammett, yeah. Hammett and, uh, and yeah. Chandler, uh, but why why them? Why not? Well, part of it was for the oral exams. I remember I asked somebody in one of my classes, do you mean you have to walk in there and they can ask you about Canterbury Tales and then they can ask you about John Updike? He said, no, no, you get to pick a century and a country. So, 
So I and I was li- interested in literary biography, right? And and this is nonfiction. This is um, and uh, so I did uh, various twentieth century male novelists and a couple of books by each of them, and then a biography or a memoir or an autobiography by them. And so that's how I picked up Hammett, was doing it that way. And when I passed my orals, you know, they call you back in and say, yes, you passed. And the guys, of course, the guys on the committee were the same age I am. And they said, you're too old to write about somebody you don't want to write about. (laughs) Pick something that'd be fun to do. And so, so I did it. And in a Screwy sort of way. I'm I'm not a person of faith, but I have religion about public libraries, and public libraries are an American invention, and they almost had to be an American invention. And hard-boiled fiction is like that. It ah. really didn't come from Wilkie Collins and Conan Doyle. It came from all those little dime Western novels people mm-hmm. bought. And then what happened was you go across, the frontier keeps getting further and further, and you get to California, and it's no surprise that these writers are California guys. That's as far as the frontier goes. Right. And it's very interesting that they flip it because, of course, in the westerns, the guy comes in and he cleans up the town and he gets the mayor's daughter, and you know everything is fine. These detectives never get the girl. They never get any money. They never, whatever they do falls apart the next day, you well, know? I, I love, what I love about it is that the romance is the lack of romance. Like, what's romantic yeah. about these guys is yeah. how, how challenged they are, you know? Yes. It, we we yeah. romanticize, like, he is broke, right? $50 a day or whatever, yeah. $40 a week. And I'm, I'm always broke. I'm, always, I'm, I'm dodging my landlord. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I can't pay the rent. I'm getting beat up. I, I don't win the fights. I lose all of the exactly. fights. And that's just – that's what's romantic. Like we want to get beaten up and drunk at 10 o'clock in the morning like Philip yeah. Marlowe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think also part of it – forgive me if I'm completely off base, but like the work – Right, the work is the thing. You know, they yeah. they kind of plunge headlong. They might not get the girl, but every day they're doing the work. Right. And there's right. a kind of not to be weird, there's a kind of loveliness to that. There's a kind of romance yeah. to that component, yeah. I would think. And that you know, Dashiell Hammett really invented something. Incidentally, he grew up. He was born in St. Mary's County, on oh, the really? other side of the bridge, in uh, on his grandfather Hammett's farm on the Patuxent River. So he's um, but he invented it, and he, his first uh, detective didn't even have a name. Hammett really grew up wanting to figure out a way to be in this world, and he was sort of a lost soul. And then the Pinkerton Detective Agency put an ad in the Baltimore Papers saying they needed operatives, and it said, orphans preferred. <laughs> so, so he signed up and you know, got sent all over the country to do things. And what he liked about it was the Pinkertons had a code, you know, always, uh, I'm trying to think, always stay sober, always, uh, trying to think of all the words. But anyway, a, a code, and the last thing is, and you're always on the job. You're always on code. And his first main detective was Continental Op, 
He, he didn't even have a name. He right. worked supposedly for the Continental uh, uh, Detective Agency, and he was an operative. So he didn't even have a name, the first, the first guy that he invented. So, yeah. And what do you think what, – what's the appeal to you? What do you think the appeal to them was of these, like, Seamus types who were, you know – Often, like, yes, they, they solve murders in the good part of the book, but when the book's not going on, they're, you know, sneaking around looking through windows and stuff like that. Do you, what do you think drew, drew, drew these men to these types of characters? I'm not sure they saw their characters as that sort of a person. Hammett may have, because he, you know, the interesting thing is, the other two guys had to learn about how to be a detective so they could write their stories. He knew how to be a detective. He had to learn how to write. Right. Um, and so he kind of knew that it's a bit of a, of a sham, you know. Mm-hmm. He used to say, well, I get all the various factors mad at each other, and then I sort of see what happens. And then, <laughs> and then he said, then I make a guess, and we go with that, and, you know. Um, um, Chandler's Marlowe was this fascinating and sad person. In the first place, Raymond Chandler, hands down, was the best writer of the three of them. It's crazy because you you grow up and you hear hear people doing the cartoonish version of that. And and they they talk about the pulp novels and how. But when you read it, it it's beautiful. It's not just – it's just so gripping. Yeah, and he had an English school education. He grew up in England. And what he always said was – all he cared about was – so, well, you can start with that. Hammett, what he cared about was, does the detective stay on code? You know, So he cared about the character of the detective. Chandler said all he cared about were the descriptions and the dialogue. He called it the music. And he said, that's all I care about. It. And even though the readers think they care about the plot and stuff, they don't really. All they care about is the music. And he – could write the music. Yeah. Uh, McDonald said about Chandler, he wrote like a slumming angel. And he, <laughs> and he did. He did. A yeah. slumming angel. I yeah. love the that. streets of Los Angeles. You know? Oh, that is so, so. And so in, your, in, in the reading that you did earlier in the synopsis, there was a moment where Ross McDonald's daughter um, has this terrible encounter. Yeah. She's 16 years old. She... Well, if I drank two quarts yeah. of wine, I'd, I'd be drunk. Yeah. Um, so she's 16. She's incredibly sad. She drinks two quarts of wine. And then she ends up killing a 13-year-old boy she, right. with her car. She hits him. And then there's this moment where Ross McDonald, uh, you know, writes about this to her psychiatrist. Yeah. So I guess my question, and Tony and I have talked before right. about moments where how much of ourselves as authors, how much of us as writers goes into right. our fiction, how much of us is revealed in our characters. Right. And it certainly seems like for Ross McDonald, like that moment sort of kind of bled yeah. into um, his detectives. And yeah. I think there was something that you wrote where you said he kind of changes, you know, his detective piece after well, that. Well, he does. You can read the Lou Archers and they change on a dime, the ones after 1956. Um yeah, and and that's a great. That's much of what I try to figure out. I have these chapters: sons and fathers, sons and mothers, sons and daughters. You know, right? And I I try to see, and Sigmund Freud very definitely believed you could see the man in his writing, um, and I tr- I played the game. Can you find Hammett and and Chandler in their fiction? 
And at the end, I decided you could, you know. But that's what I looked at because McDonald became a confessional writer. He, it wasn't hard to find his because he told you. Right, you know? sure. But the other two were not confessional writers. Chandler especially was not. But Hammett, too, was just a very reticent man who didn't like his his business out in the in the world. And uh, But you can still find it in there, you and, know. And you wonder how much of that we... We bring to the story right now when yeah. you're going through this because you because you're you're trying to be rigorous. You have to find a way to keep yourself from saying, "Oh, I want to see something," right. versus actually seeing it. Right, and that's the great caveat here is, even though you look at Freudian archetypes and do you see it and all this stuff. In the end, there's always a little magic in there. Right. I mean, I know all this stuff now about Raymond Chandler and that he he couldn't live with his own sexual orientation and that sort of stuff. But I don't know why he could write like a slumming angel. <laughs> it was just a way to it was a way to look at him and a way to think about him. It's not like I figured them out, you know. Um, and of course, this leaves you with three questions. The first question is: Were Sigmund Freud and Ross McDonald right? Can you find the author in his fiction even when he doesn't want you to? The second question is, okay, say you can find it. Does that buy you anything? Do you get more out of the reading if you know about the author? And the third question, which is queasy for me, is, is this fair game? It's fair game with McDonald because he talked about it and he did it. But is it fair game for Hammond and Chandler who would not have wanted this? And the only way I finally came to think that it was all right is that these guys were writing to support themselves and their families. They, they were not off in Paris with the Hemingways. They right. Were, they were writing, you know, paycheck to paycheck here. And, they, and again, MacDonald very much had the idea that you need the reader. He's the third part. You have, you have the writer and the written work and the reader, and you need all three. So, well, and yeah. S- Stephanie touched on that, and that's kind of what I was getting at the, the, the work a day Joe aspect of, right. of them. It, that's the same thing. They're, they're not living well. Yeah. They're, not, you know, they're not living healthfully, but no. they've got to do whatever, whatever yeah. it takes to get, because they're by the word, right? So, yeah. whatever, whatever it takes to get to that 10,000th word, that's exactly. what you have to do. Otherwise, you exactly. don't eat this week. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and they're detectives, you know. They have bad backs, and they're a little overweight, and they have trouble <laughs> with their boss. And, you know, they're not, you know, it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger here. Or a great intellect, you right. know. Right. It's, it's just, and that's, but it also, it didn't take a great intellect to be a pulp writer. It just took, yeah. you just put your head down yeah. and bang it against that wall until the wall gives or you do. Yeah, although I must say, when you read, because the original pulp detective stuff were uh, magazines, and they were all short stories, and they're <laughs> they're unbelievably bad. They really are. <laughs> and then when uh, Sh- Charles Shaw took over Black Mask magazine, huh. and Hammett was doing little pieces for them, and they got together and said, "Why don't we try write, Why don't you try writing something longer?" And Hammett had said he thought he wanted to do that. Well, then. I mean, it is remarkable how much better the writing is. It really is. That was a giant leap, you know. Well, because, I mean, all the the earliest ones needed were tawdry covers in a couple. Yeah, and there were hundreds of these things. Yeah. There's science fiction ones and doctor ones and nurse ones. There were many, many of them. 
Also, you know, we were talking about, you know, you were saying these were not great heroes, but they're super relatable. These yeah. these guys who are, you know, not everybody gets the guy or the girl that they, yeah. they dream exactly. of. Not everybody has the job that they exactly. want. Not every, you know, there's going to be people who are picking up the books and who are working some, shle- they're just yeah. schlepping through some job, not really happy in their marriage, but they're going to identify exactly. with these characters. Exactly. And I think that they're maybe unlikely heroes in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, Raymond Chandler said in the very last letter he wrote, and he wrote thousands of letters. You know, the book of his letters is like this thick. He said about his about uh, Marla, I see him always in lonely streets, in lonely rooms. And oh, man. So, well, that's beautiful yeah. and heartbreaking in the same. You see a slumming angel. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd, I'd love to ask about that because you said that you were apprehensive about how much he would like to have right. his have his story told right. um and i know that having done research myself that when you touch something that they've touched that's a special connection that they generated by their work not by yes. what you're reading but 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 by what you were never supposed to yeah. read and i feel like that's maybe a way of honoring them as well oh that's a good thought i like that <laughs> when i wake up guilty in the middle of the night i'll think of that and i guess i won't really ever frame this but i do have a letter signed in spidery little handwriting of a woman in her 90s that says dear karen thank you for your interest in my father's writing and it's signed by dashiell hammett's daughter oh wow and that's Get a cool out. thing to have and that i interviewed his cool. granddaughter and i I went to Irvine to, you know, see this stuff. It's a great story about Raymond Chandler, and I'll ask you because I yeah. don't remember where I heard it, and I would love to know if it's true, and I can't remember the Bogart movie. That was the big sleep. The big sleep. Yeah. said that at the end, uh, Faulkner came to Wilder and said, I can't, I can't figure out who killed the chauffeur. That's right. And so they called up Chandler. Is this a true story? Yeah. And uh, they called up Chandler, and, and they said, hey, you know, who killed the chauffeur? And Chandler says, oh, well, let's say George killed him. And Faulkner's like, no, 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 he couldn't have. And Chandler's like, well, sometimes people just get killed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just said... I don't. He said, "I don't know. I never, it doesn't matter." And he said again, "The only thing that matters is the music." You know. When you told that story yeah. before, that that registered yeah. in the back of my head so hard I couldn't remember the name of the movie. I'm like, "Well, I yeah. need to know if this is true." Yeah. And somebody asked him when you're writing, you know, what if he gets stuck? And he said, "Oh, he gets stuck. You have a guy come through the door with a gun." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll unstick that'll you. move it along. Yeah. Now you uh, to kind of divert from the from the book a little sure. bit. Um, you spent your your career working in in public library. That's right. Did that sort of bleed into how you approached writing? Did you sort of kind of view it that way or did it, was it just like, I just kind of, I don't know out? if it has to do with being a librarian, but I've, I've always been sort of a workforce. I'm always, always tried to tell my kids, it's amazing how far you can get if you just turn in the stuff on time and show up every day and that kind of thing. It, it served me well in, in librarianship. It's been a good profession. And these guys were work guys. Well, yeah, I mean, you yeah. kind of show up every day, you do the work, yeah. and these guys are doing the same, and their characters are doing That's the same. Right. So, the yeah. great difference in that is The Thin Man. That's the last book that Dashiell Hammett wrote, and it was in 1934, and he lived till 1961, but he never wrote after that. And it made him all his money. He was set for life, you yeah. know, doing it. But it says something that Americans during the Depression thought this was a madcap comedy. 
Because when you read it, the guy is not working. He's living off his wife's money. He's not really much of a detective. All the clues come, walk into his hotel room where they live, you know, and he sort of figures it out after a while. But it's really a pretty tap dancing as fast as you can and an enormous amount of drinking. Yeah. You know, it's so that's, and he's the only one. Otherwise, his detectives, including Sam Spade, really are slugging along detectives, private eyes. So was there a change in his life that you think? Because I think that's, is that Nick and Nora? Is that? Yes. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and so do you, was, was there a change in his circumstances that you think made him approach? Well, I think there's a couple things. For one thing, he lost aggregate years to alcoholism. And in, fa- and in fact, he stopped drinking in 1948, and he did it in a very dashel Hammett way. A, di- a doctor said, you ought to stop. And he said, okay, and he did. And he never <laughs> talked about it. He never went to AA. He just, he, just, he just said, okay. When he ran afoul of the McCarthy courts and stuff, and they sent him to prison, they said, do you want to say anything before you're sentenced? He said, no. And they sent him <laughs> to prison for a year, and he sort of liked prison. When Lillian <laughs> Helen said when he got out, he talked about prison the way people talk about college days. You know? <laughs> the other thing is, my sort of little definition I worked up was that a hard-boiled fiction is, a, is an existential man in a nihilistic world. In other words, you can't make anything better and you're only responsible to yourself. Well, in the 1930s, Hammett got interested in the American Communist Party and he joined it. He was a card-carrying member. And if you look at the things they were in favor of, if you look at them today, it's like better education, uh, Government employees should be able to work on political campaigns without losing their job. It, it's all stuff that seems basic. seems basic now. But in the course of that, he came to believe that there that you could make the world a little better. Well, then you can't have you couldn't write a detective like that. I you see. know, so that that uh, the irony is he couldn't, but eventually McDonald did. And coming from very different points of view, they kind of arrived at the same place. He mentored Lillian Hellman, and he taught writing at the New School for Social Research in in, uh, New York City. So he did other things, Mm. but he did not write again. Yeah. Uh, How did you move this from dissertation to published novel? Well, working for the library full-time, but on the weekends... I worked for Louis Dabney, who is who has since died, but he is the professor emeritus and the definitive biographer of Edmund Wilson, and he also edited Wilson's journals. And then every summer, he and his wife went back to the University of Wyoming, where he had taught. So in the summers, I, I, it took me two summers, and I turned mine into a manuscript, and I I said when I, dedica- I dedicated the book to my sons, and I said, and for Lewis Dabney, who taught me how to write a book, which he did. And that's, that's, that's fairly common practice to, to take your dissertation and, and rework it for... Yeah, I think. I think people, you know, a lot of times people do, yeah. I have, I have a couple of smaller books that I've done, uh, okay. nonfiction beer books. Yeah. And it was... It, the first one, it was really difficult to find... A publisher, yeah. like I didn't. Yeah, like, Stephanie's told this story before. Like you don't know where to start. You're like, well, you know, where's yeah. here's my book, and then nobody yeah. cares. Yeah. So how did you go about find? How did you go about? 
I did this, and of course, what I really wanted was a university press to put this out. <laughs> well, I can't tell you how many places I sent this to. And you either never heard anything back often, or they said no. And then Bill Peek, who works at the library with me, and our, we don't even have cubicles. We're just all in, you know, and he's literally right next to me. Um, he wrote a book, and a man named Ron Souder, who's now in Salisbury, yep, we know Ron. started the Seacant Publishing, and he heard Bill read poetry on the Salisbury radio station, something like that. Bill will get it straight when he talks to you. And Ron called him and to see if he had any writing. So anyway, so he decided to publish uh, Bill's book, The Oblate's Confession, and after a while, of course, Bill said, so <laughs> there's this lady who sits next to me. So what could Ron say? Okay, I'll read her manuscript. So, so, but he did. And then we met at the Cambridge Diner, and, uh, <laughs> and he told me he wanted to publish it. So it was sheer luck. Wow. You know? Wow. If you say, oh, I'm writing for publication, that's like saying my career plan is to be in the NBA. I mean, it's just... The difficult thing about, about nonfiction is that so much more time goes into the not writing part <laughs> that when yeah. you get to the writing part, you're like, somebody better take this. Cause we're going to have a problem yeah. if they don't. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like uh, Chandler saying, Oh, it's the music demand. To me, it was the research. That's cause that's all I had. I'd done that my whole career was the scholarship and the research. That's what mattered to me. And so do you have, so you said you don't have another book in your drawer. Do you have another one in your head? Is Oh, you think about it some. I'm not. I'm not ready to make any great decisions at the moment. But you do think about it. Yeah. Uh, and mostly, I'm. I'm very. Once I got over myself about having actually found somebody to buy the rights to my book, <laughs> then you see how books get published. And it's fascinating. Yeah, I get to do that every day, and yeah, it is pretty. It yeah. is pretty cool. Yeah, it is very cool. Has you know, and then it was very well received. I mean, like I said yeah. in the in the intro, that Kirkus Review said it was one of the best indie books of yeah. August 2016. Yeah. That's not praise that I've come across um, yeah. frequently. It was in the Wall Street Journal, and the Wall Street yeah. Journal as well. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like as a you know first time author, and then you just sort of I mean, you just you didn't like just hit a, a nice little single or a double. I mean, you hit a grand slam with that. Well, so I mean, I think there again, you get lucky. I had, because it was nonfiction, I had to get permissions from any author who I'd quoted more than 350 attributed quoted words. There were like three of them or four of them that I'd quoted that much. Said, sure, you can do it. If it were up to me, you can do it and you can do it for free. But they don't own the rights. The publisher owns the rights. And in fact, one of the people said, if it makes you feel any better, he said, I just wrote a book and I had to pay the guy who published my last book to quote my own words. That's again. tough. So, but <sighs> you find out the writers are nice people. There were a lot of people who were very nice to me, and there was no gain to them. You yeah, know? and you're always surprised who you can get on the phone too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, I called um, Otto Penzler, you know, who does the mysterious bookshop in New York. I wanted the contact information for Hammett's granddaughter, and I thought he might have it. 
we call, and this guy answers the phone, and he said, oh, Otto might know that. He's just going in his office. So, so they put me through, and I said, are you really Otto Pensler? And he said, yeah. And he said, oh, yeah, here's her email address. And he gave it to me, and I said, I can't believe I'm talking to Otto Pensler. And he said, oh, you should get out more. <laughs> so, you know, people were nice. I was surprised. I was surprised. Yeah, I mean, I always kind of think that, you know, writers, although, you know, you have that sort of uh, stereotype that we're sort of brooding and we're yeah. sort of moody and potentially alcoholics and, you know, all this sort of, you know, we're torn and tormented, all that. But I think when it gets down to it, when you talk to an author about their work, most of us are just ecstatic that someone's read something yeah. that yeah. we've done. Most of yeah. us are just so happy yeah. that someone took the time to read it and then took the time to follow up with a phone yeah. call or an email. And you're like, wait, you read what I did? We are actually, we are we are a little bit over time here. So Fine. we're coming to the part of the show where I'm going to, a little little summary. We do, uh, we want you to email us stuff. If you drop us an email at podcast at saltwatermedia.com we will send you a postcard and on that postcard tony will write a limerick and i will write a haiku and we'll put a stamp on it and send it to you so just drop us a little love via email get 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 mail just like a grown-up like like real mail that's not like somebody trying to trick you into buying their insurance or, or not like a bed bath and beyond coupon or something those are probably more valuable I, if you have we have a soda stream so we kind of look forward to that yeah well i i, I love the linen there so wait this is not a bed bath and <laughs> Beyond commercial. This is not what we're doing. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Not Bed Bath and Beyond. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's a part of the show where you thank guests. Well, thank you very much, Karen, for being here. We were lovely. It was lovely to talk to you and, and about your work. So. Thank you. You made it very easy. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, what's your story? Was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Want to hear more? Visit www.saltwatermedia.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher. Want other people to hear more? Give us a great review there. Tell your story.